Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Dr. Inesh Azevedo, Associate Professor of Energy Resources Engineering, Senior Fellow at the Woods Institute for the Environment, and a Fellow at the Precourt Institute for Energy, all at Stanford University. Inesh publishes on a very wide range of topics, but today we are going to focus on her work that examines the effects of particulate matter emissions from the power sector and how those emissions affect public health. She'll describe where the emissions come from, how they affect different parts of the country, how effects vary across racial and demographic characteristics, and much more. Stay with us. All right, Inesh Azevedo from Stanford University. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you so much for having me. So Inesh, we're going to talk about um, a variety of aspects of your work. We're going to focus on the electricity sector and human health. Um, But before we talk about that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in environmental issues, either at a young age or later in your life. So what sort of drew you into this field? (laughs) So I would say that parents play a role. Um, both my uh, mom and dad were uh, agronomical engineers and public servants their whole life. Uh, and uh, my uh, mom pursued also a, a PhD and taught for a while. And, and some of their professional work was really on um, allocating uh, funds uh, from the EU Commission to environmental and agricultural projects. And so from earlier on, I had the opportunity to have conversations with them and awareness of the importance of environmental issues and, and, and climate change. Um, and I was always attracted to questions that um, weren't related to a single discipline. So this interaction between, well, what technologies could do and the role of policies. So really wasn't quite sure even what to study. And and, and environmental engineering um, back in Portugal, where I'm originally from, as you can tell, I, I do have a slight accent, was the perfect combination of, of that. So that that was uh, uh, the, the sort of early awareness at home. It was very important to me. But then even after undergrad, I wasn't quite sure what to do and had um, really the unique opportunity to meet someone that really drove a lot of my intellectual interests, who is uh, Professor Granger Morgan. He was visiting Portugal uh, to assess several graduate programs over there. And I had the chance to just sit down and talk with him for a while. And we um, immediately got into fights regarding the role (laughs) of um, CCS technologies and renewables in the future of energy systems. Of course, I had no clue what I was talking about at the time, but it was a very interesting conversation, so much so that I decided uh, there on the spot that I really wanted to do a PhD in engineering and public policy, the department um, where he was at, and, and he was indeed my PhD advisor. Wow, that's great. Um, yeah, Granger is amazing. We really should try to get him on the show sometime. So we haven't <laughs> been lucky enough to do that yet. Um, that's hilarious how you started off 
fighting with your PhD advisor. And that continued, and that was the best working relationship because through those fights, we 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 learned a lot, or at least I did learn a lot. <laughs> yeah, oh, fantastic. Um, well, let's get into our conversation today. And um, as you know, some listeners will know your work touches on so many different areas. It's hard to kind of know where to focus. But um, but we're going to start, as I said, with a couple of papers that you've co-authored in recent years on the health effects of uh, particulate matter emissions from electricity generation that's powered by fossil fuels, coal and natural gas mostly, but also oil to, to a lesser extent in the United States. Um, so can you give us a high level overview of how these health effects tend to vary across regions and across incomes and across uh, races in the United States. Sure. And and first, I'd like to mention that the, the paper that you're referring to was done in collaboration with uh, three amazing researchers that I had the opportunity to work with. And, and those are Maninder Thind, uh, Chris Tessem, and Julian Marshall. Um, and as you pointed out, I mean, power plants uh, uh, in our electricity system do emit uh, air pollutants that, that harm our health in, in kind of two ways, in direct emissions of, of PM 2.5, as well as the emission of other pollutants that then react in, in the atmosphere, creating secondary uh, PM. And so those are SO2, NOx, and, and VOCs. And so first and foremost, I think the good news is that our grid has become cleaner over time, and that's thanks to environmental regulations that require the adoption of air pollution control technologies, uh, the transition to natural gas and to renewable generation, and, and the fact that we're moving away from coal generation in, in many regions. But but still today, electricity generation is a large contributor to, to PM emissions and um, to the underlying health effects. And so previous research had already looked at the the range of premature mortality from the power sector in the U.S., and the numbers range from 10,000 to more than 52,000 premature deaths per year. What research had not looked at um, is, is really how the premature mortality depends on or is associated with different uh, demographics. And, and so that's what we did. We estimated uh, the health effects from air pollution from electricity generation for different regions, for each U.S. state, and by income and race. And specifically to your question, we, we did find that the exposure is higher for lower income uh, than for high income households. But more than that, uh, the disparities are larger by race and ethnicity than income. So, for example, we find that um, Black African-Americans suffer higher premature mortality uh, than other races and ethnicities. And we find that that effect is persistent even across income brackets. So if we look at the high income brackets, the premature mortality is lower than for others, but we do still see the effect where uh, uh, Black and African-American have uh, higher rates of premature mortality. Now, that's one dimension of demographic effects, but we looked at other distributional effects. And so, for example, geographically, we observe large differences on uh, regarding where electricity is produced and where people experience the resulting consequences from um, air pollution. And so, for example, for 36 states, 
the vast majority of the consequences come from emissions outside of the state borders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that issue of geography is so interesting. Um, and uh, I, I just want to clarify a couple of acronyms that you used uh, in your answer before we go on. So PM 2.5, that is particulate matter, that is 2.5 microns or less in diameter. Uh, SO2 is sulfur dioxide, I think I'm getting these right. NOx is nitrous oxides and VOC is volatile organic compounds. Did I get those right? You got it. Okay, cool. Um, So you have already touched on this um, in your answer to that previous question, but can you talk a little bit more about which fuel or fuels are most responsible for these health effects? Um, And and also a little bit more about this geography question. So whether most of the damages affect people who live close to the power plants or further away. So coal is associated with the overwhelming majority of premature deaths in the power sector. Indeed, the coal power plants constitute um, 90% of premature deaths from air pollution from uh, electricity production. And and the damage the, the damages from air pollution will will often affect um, people that live very far away from where the emissions occur. Um, for example, the bulk of the damages from air pollution that occur in Pennsylvania or Ohio will come from other states rather than from emissions in those states, while at the same time, the emissions from Pennsylvania and Ohio power plants are amongst the ones that have the largest impacts in other states. So indeed, geography matters. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um There is another study that you co-authored that estimates the climate and health benefits of reducing U.S. power sector emissions by 30%. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you found in terms of the quantitative benefits um, of those emissions reductions, 30% relative to, I want to say, 2015 levels perhaps, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. And then if you'd also talk a little bit about how sensitive the results are to some of the key assumptions that go into producing the estimates, things like the social cost of carbon or the value of a statistical life. I'll be happy to. And I'll mention again that that, that this is a neat collaborative effort uh, that was led by my former PhD student, uh, Dr. Brian Sergi, who is now at NREL. And we had the opportunity to also work with uh, Peter Adams, Nick Mueller, Alan Robinson, Steve Davis, and Julian Marshall on this work. And um, what we did was first to characterize the electricity generating units across uh, the U.S. in terms of their cost, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, and their pollutant emissions. And and then we asked the question of which plants would need to uh, to get removed or retired from the system, and what sort of generation would they need to be replaced with to achieve a goal of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 30%. And importantly, we tracked also the health co-benefits that would arise from removing these plants from the system, which often are not only high GG emitters, but also high air pollutant emitters And so what did we find? Well, first, um, in terms of the climate benefits, when we assume a social cost of carbon of $40 per ton of CO2, the 30% emissions reduction goal would lead to $17 billion annually in reduced climate damages. 
and and of course to your point about the social cost of carbon value and how that uh, affects the conclusions the this figure would change directly proportionately to the social cost of carbon assumed um, so our results are very sensitive for the climate damages on um, our assumptions for the social cost of carbon now in addition to the reduction in climate damages that directly emerges from the climate policy, uh, we estimated the reduction in health damages from air pollution. And there we found that health damages would be reduced by um, between 21 and 68 billion per year. Uh, so this would correspond to uh, 2300, between 2300 and 7500 lives saved per year in terms of premature mortality avoided. And so this really means that the co-benefit from air pollution can be higher in magnitude than the benefit from reducing the climate change damages. Of course, this depends on a wide range of, of, of assumptions. The range itself that we found for the air pollution reduction benefits is quite wide, and that depends on several assumptions and uncertainties. And the main one is the dose response function. So how do we relate the effects to health associated with an increase in PM 2.5 concentration. But other uncertainties that uh, and assumptions that will influence the range in our results include the type of air quality model used. So we actually tested the use of three reduced form air quality models that have been developed by colleagues and many of them co-authors in, in the study. And that has a, an effect, but less so um, than the assumption on the dose response function. And of course, the value of a statistical life would also play a role, but in the results that I'm quoting here, we assume the EPA recommended value of $7.4 million in, in 2006 dollars, and we updated it to $9 million in 2017 dollars. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. And um, the... A couple of things you mentioned uh, rang bells for previous episodes, just to refer listeners to. We actually had Nick Muller on the show, who was one of your co-authors on the study, who I believe um, you know, uh, designed one of those uh, reduced form uh, air transport models that you mentioned. And then if people want to bone up on the value of a statistical life, we did a whole episode on that with Alan Krupnik maybe 18 months ago now. Um, so two you know, really, uh, really fascinating people talking about those topics if you want to dig more deeply into them. So let's turn now, Inesh, to, um, to another topic that you've done a lot of work on, which is energy efficiency. Um, energy efficiency, of course, is going to play an enormous role in reducing emissions across the power sector and across the economy. Well, probably across the economy more broadly in that, than that has effects uh, for the power sector. Um, but you know there are sometimes debates within the economics community in particular about the cost effectiveness of uh, some energy efficiency programs um, like the weatherization assistance program and, and others and trying to figure out you know which policies get us the best bang for the buck in terms of, of emissions reductions so as someone who's kind of looked broadly across the energy efficiency space um, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the key lessons uh, from the research on energy efficiency, uh, and what more do we need to know to make uh, smart policy decisions? So we've produced a recent review paper um, on what we have learned from energy efficiency research in the last 
40 years. And this was a piece that was co-authored with many colleagues and co-led by uh, Harry Saunders and Joyshree uh, Roy. Um, and I guess some of the key messages are that uh, energy efficiency has a very important role to play. So we do know that we um, can make use of more efficient induced technologies in the residential and commercial uh, sector, all the way from uh, more efficient lighting and transition to LEDs to more efficient uh, other end-use equipment. Um, so the potential for savings is there, and in some instances, um, those would be decisions that are cost-effective to consumers when you look immediately at the numbers. But then things get uh, a little bit muddled in terms of how people make decisions and which of those decisions are realistically feasible um, in in the current settings. So I would say that the role is important, but the expectation that would achieve something like full decarbonization via energy efficiency would be highly misleading. Um, still a large contribution. Every so often, uh, concerns about rebound effects also arise as part of the discussion on energy efficiency. And um, I wouldn't say there is a consensus on the role of rebound effect, and, and actually the discussions that emerge are, are generally very fierce. But at the level of the direct rebound effects, meaning really increasing the use of the same um, device or end use because you have a more efficient one, such as switching from incandescent light bulbs to uh, LEDs, uh, would be a very minor effect, if, if, if at all, or traveling many more miles as you switch to a more efficient vehicle because you're saving on gasoline. Um, that, that may not be a very um, important effect. The Indirect rebound effect in terms of shifts in your patterns of consumption from one thing to another, given that you have an additional budget to spend um, when you invest in energy efficient, cost effective uh, strategies, is much more certain and, and likely a little bit bigger than the direct rebound effect, but still not something that I'll be too concerned about. Now, the overall economy-wide rebound effects, that's a, that's a whole other deal. And, and I, I do think more research is needed to understand the, the implications of such. And really, uh, those are uh, the implications of large structural changes that come with uh, the decrease in energy intensity for, for energy use. And what does that do to prices and the overall new uh, equilibrium that results from search? So I think a lot of interesting research could emerge from there to understand a little bit better all those um, indirect effects and resulting equilibria. Uh, but that uh, energy efficiency would still have a very important role to play in um, decarbonizing uh, our systems. That's really interesting. And I, I actually had not thought much about the issue of the economy-wide rebound effect. The indirect rebound effect makes sense. I, and I think, just to make sure I'm understanding you, that the logic there would be 
let's imagine I buy a fuel efficient car, which means I spend less on gasoline, which means I have more money to, you know, drive out to my favorite steakhouse and eat a big steak, right? Which has a big carbon footprint as well. Is that about right for the indirect rebound effect? That's a lovely example. Yes, that's right on. <laughs> okay. So that's the indirect rebound effect. And the Economy-wide rebound effect, I imagine that's something where you would need um, a computable, generalizable equilibrium model, a CGE model that uh, some economists have developed to try to answer those questions about how everything sloshes around in the entire economy. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's right on. Okay, great. Well, um, we are getting close to the end of time, but but I have two more questions that I'd love to ask you uh, before we go to our top of the stack segment. The first one is a question about... Um, kind of the attention that we as a society give to um, greenhouse gas emissions versus uh, so-called conventional air pollutants like PM 2.5. There's so much discussion about climate change, and rightly so. Uh, it's an enormous challenge. But you know, I feel like we hear less in the popular conversation and, and in the media about the sort of day-to-day -day health effects of particulate matter, which really cause the most immediate damages and also, as you found in your analysis, could actually be you know more significant than the risks of climate change. Why do you think that is? Um, I think as um, you well pointed out, climate change has been at the forefront of the discussions in the media, in the policy realms, and, and we do need to tackle this massive challenge of um, getting to decarbonized uh, energy systems. So the the attention um, is important and, and, and required. Um, until recently, I think there was um, not so much data and, and methods and frameworks to understand the damages uh, from air pollution to the scale that we've seen in, in recent years. So there was a lot of um, model development in the last decade, um, funded also by the national agencies in, in, in the case of, of the United States, that now allows us to really have a better understanding of the magnitude of the problem. So very much in the vein of the integrated assessment models that were developed to understand um, climate impacts and costs of mitigation, as well as costs of inaction, uh, now there is a, a, a suite of integrated assessment models for um, air quality. And you just mentioned also the podcast inviting Nick Mueller that has developed some of those, as well as some of the co-authors of the previous work that, that I mentioned here. Um, so I, I think highlighting the fact that these co-benefits may be in the same order of magnitude or sometimes even higher then the range of benefits from climate change is really an important first step to bring attention to this issue. The really good news is that those co-benefits are there, but the key point that I would like to highlight is that you can have even larger benefits by tackling climate change and air pollution damages together rather than in isolation. And the cost of doing so increases by just a little bit and less so than the benefits. So the net benefits for considering those policies jointly are much larger and the idea of doing so. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting how the two 
um, issues are so closely connected and yet, you know, just receive kind of different different amounts of attention. But it's nice that the scales are being balanced in, in, in part because of the great work that you and, and your co-authors have, have been doing. So now just one more question, Inesh, before we go to our top of the stack segment, which is I know you've been um, spending some time in Europe and you've just returned to California fairly recently. And I'm just curious to hear what you've been working on. I know you have like 700 things you're trying to do at once. Can you tell us about some of the things that are getting you most excited these days? Sure. So the research on quantifying distributional effects and environmental justice aspects of um, energy systems and its sustainable transition uh, are really the thing that is driving the bulk of, of my research and and uh, and the research of my students who are doing really just this incredible work. And so two um, examples of um, work that we're hoping to wrap up soon relate to the transportation uh, sector. And so the question here is is really as we electrify transportation, who are the winners and who are the, the losers and thinking about different dimensions. The first one is that you may remove vehicles from um, densely populated um, city areas. And so you're improving on um, the air quality in those locations. While at the same time, if you're in a region in the Midwest or, or in India, which is our other uh, case study currently, you're going to be powering those electric vehicles with uh, coal power plants. And in the case of India, um, the coal power plants don't have air pollution control technologies. So you'd be on that really increasing um, the damages uh, to health. So there are clear trade-offs there. Um, and yet another dimension is uh, the issue of affordability. Uh, for those vehicles. So who are the adopters versus who bears the consequences from the changes in air pollution or um, electricity rate increases. So that stream of work, and in particular with this focus on contrasting um, the situation in India with the situation in uh, the United States is uh, really a set of results that I'm very excited about. That's so interesting. I can't wait to see them. Um, is it under review right now, or are you still in the research phase? So preparing for review and hopefully submitting very soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know how that goes. Good luck finishing it all up, and then, of course, getting getting friendly and uh, helpful reviewers along the way. Thank you so much. Well, let's uh, go now, Inesh, to our top of the stack question, where we ask you to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard lately that you think our listeners would enjoy. And I'll start with a sort of log rolly recommendation um, that features our fantastic producer, Elizabeth Wasson. Elizabeth edits um, and kind of oversees all of the publications on our resources magazine uh, webpage, as well as the physical a uh, copy of Resources Magazine that goes out uh, every few months. And there's just been an enormous uh, number of really great blog posts that Elizabeth has been editing uh, and getting up onto the resources.org webpage. There's really great stuff on fuel economy standards, the Clean Electricity Performance Program, which of course is in the middle of reconciliation discussions, uh, machine learning and energy savings, and then smart thermostats. There's just a ton of great content on there. So uh, if you you know have five minutes and you want to uh, learn something 
really interesting about a wide range of energy and environmental topics, I'd just encourage you to check out resources.org. But how about you, Anish? What's on the top of your stack? So I think in in these times, humor is really welcome. So my suggestion will be something fairly light, but also important. Several late night show hosts have coordinated a few days ago or weeks, depending on when the podcast goes up. This podcast, just so people know, we're recording this on September 30th, uh, and it'll probably air in a couple of weeks. So it'll probably be two or three weeks ago by the time you are hearing this. So by then, uh, hopefully most of the listeners haven't missed that, but uh, the the (laughs) Late Show hosts coordinated to talk about climate change. And that was just lovely to see. So just watching that all across the board would be my my light suggestion from <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, the, I actually haven't watched that myself and, and really need to check it out. So thank you very much for that recommendation. And thank you again so much for coming on Resources Radio, uh, telling us about the wide range uh, of research that you carry out and helping us understand it. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.